Every career is a journey. Every leader has a story. Welcome to Journey to the Energy C-Suite, where we look at the strategies and techniques that turn solid leaders into top executives. This is your place to hear practical wisdom and guidance from real people who know what it takes. With your host, Ryan Sanford. Hey again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite. I am your host, Ryan Sanford. It is great to be back with you again. Thanks for for pressing that play button again on the OGGN. Really excited for the guest I have to bring to you today. He is a 29-year veteran of ExxonMobil in a variety of disciplines within IT, infrastructure, ops, and engineering, application and database support, process development and redesign, strategy development. He's also an avid mountain biker, barbecue enthusiast, and music fan. In 2018, he became ExxonMobil's IT Chief Technology Architect. He is Brett McKee. Brett, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Ryan, it's my pleasure. Uh, I've really enjoyed listening to uh, the podcast and I'm honored to uh, receive the invite. So looking forward to uh, chatting with you today and hopefully sharing some insights for all of our technologists out there and how uh, they too may you know, continue in their own career uh, pursuits uh, as a technologist. Now, I know they all, they're all they all like waiting to hear all of your insights around technology, but before we do that, we have to get to the really important stuff because fall weather has hit Houston early this year, oh, man. and I know you're a barbecue guy, so I know you, you probably have some barbecue plans coming up soon. What's the next thing you're going to be putting on the, on the smoker? Well, well, if I were going to do that, because uh, right now I'm a little bit interrupted by uh, football season as well, so big Alabama football fan, so... Uh, have to give a big roll tide there as well. But if I were to uh, be home and, and put some things on the, the the smoker, it would probably be a little bit of pork shoulder. I'd probably throw in a little bit of uh, ribs and, and then I might experiment every now and then with something I call a beef clod. So if you're familiar with a pork shoulder, a beef clod is the equivalent on uh, the beef side. Wow. I've not had beef clod to my knowledge. I would love to try that at some point. Do you make your own sauces and rubs? I do. Yeah. I, I have a, a, a rub that I uh, kind of abstracted from Alton Brown uh, and, and kind of adopted it to my flavors and taste based on if it's beef or pork. Uh, and then sauces, it's mostly a Carolina vinegar-based sauce that I use in my pork. I haven't quite mastered a ketchup-based sauce for beef or things like that, but it's a pretty mean uh, vinegar-based uh, sauce that, that we thoroughly enjoying our family. We also have, because we're from Alabama, something called a white barbecue sauce, which was made famous by a place there in Alabama for their chicken. So when we smoke chicken, we uh, bring in this uh, Alabama white barbecue sauce made out of mayonnaise vinegar and a couple of other uh, uh, spices and whatnot. Well, my, my mouth is watering already <laughs> here. I'm, I'm going to have to check out some somewhere to eat barbecue this weekend. No, that that's really good stuff, Brett. So oh, uh, let's let's get into this a little bit now um, because I could talk with you about barbecue all day. I really oh, could, yes. uh, and I know you could. But let, let's get into your career a little bit. You know, help help us understand. You know, what is the scope of your role as the IT chief technology architect? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, I look at it kind of three different areas is what you could probably sum up my role. The first, of course, is emerging technology. 
I own our emerging technology program and portfolio for our IT organization. And, and this really includes the process and, and, and outcomes associated with uh, if you think elevating those uh, or evaluating those IT technologies coming over the horizon that can deliver business or IT operational value in the next three plus years. If you think quantum computing, homomorphic encryption, low earth orbit satellites, augmented reality, and of course the list goes on. Uh, the second area is, is what I would call enterprise architectural guardrails. So once we identify technologies, we ultimately have to deploy those technology capabilities within the confines of a set of architectural guardrails that we have come to call enterprise architecture principles and mandate. For example, all the new applications and major upgrades to existing applications must implement modern authentication like single sign-on uh, with no IDs and passwords for end users. And then the third area is this technical talent pipeline development. So obviously it takes people to identify, design, uh, deploy, and, and, and operate these technology capabilities. So I have a role in supporting and sustaining our technical talent pipeline across our early, mid, and late career technical associates. So this includes sponsoring our IT fellows community. And this is a group of about 36 associates who have received the highest designation for technologists within ExxonMobil IT. So three areas, people, process, and tools, if you want to summarize it that way. Right. And you've been at Exxon, as we said in the opening, for, for 29 years now, a number of different disciplines across, uh, across that time. You know, help us understand maybe what some of the key experiences were that prepared you for your current role uh, from your past roles. You know, it's interesting. I've always enjoyed learning, sort of like uh, Johnny Five from the 1980s movie Short Circuit, input, <laughs> input, input. You know, also uh, science and math were my favorite subjects in school, mostly because they both included some good old fashioned problem solving. You know, even in my hobbies, as you mentioned, uh, you know, barbecuing and mountain biking, you know, to me, those really can be broken down into math and science. So if you go back to barbecuing and smoking meats, if you think about it low and slow, you know, the, the application of apple versus peach versus hickory smoke uh, to pork or beef. If you think about that mix of, of salt, pepper and other spices in a rub and what works best for brisket probably doesn't work the best and bring out the flavors of ribs and chicken or pork shoulder. And then mountain biking as well, it's a lot about geometry. <laughs> uh, if you think about geometries for head tube angles and seat angles and suspensions and you know the type of tires, the tire pressure, uh, again, obviously I can go on about that. But problem solving is, is, is at the core of that. And when I started with Exxon before the, the merger uh, in 1999-2000, in you know, I really just wanted to go all in on technical uh, challenges, technical problems. And really, the company allowed me to dig into many areas of technology, you know, giving me some early wins and experiences that let me become the subject matter expert. You know, I installed the first router at our former uh, chemicals headquarters out on Katy Freeway in Houston. Uh, and, and quickly moved into, you know, implementing the first shared application between our chemical and refinery businesses. And, you know, these were followed with a number of other what I would call technology first in our company. The first BlackBerry or CrackBerry, if you remember those devices. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, the first instant messaging and online meeting solutions. 
the first virtual server that we ever deployed within uh, the company. You know, automations and, and, and even many of the emerging technologies that we've now employed at our campus uh, here in, in, in Houston. I was also helped, you know, employ our, uh, a, a high-performance computing uh, replacement that was actually used to process much of our early Guyana data, leading to many of the discoveries that have been uh, recorded over the past several years, to, you know, growing Linux and containers as a platform. A again, the list goes on with quantum computing and edge computing and 5G and AI ML platforms. But, you know, Brian, it's, it, it's not all about technology. And as you can see, I can probably geek out about the technology for quite some time. But I also had to have several organizational leadership roles, think supervisory and, and, and management roles to provide some additional rounding and development of skills. You know, most of those were involved with some of those technology first uh, that, that I mentioned, be it our uh, SAP platforms or email platforms, uh, a noted high performance compute and, and others. And even building on top of those formal supervisory and, and, and management roles, you know, I had some roles where it was really more about developing and setting strategy or developing global processes. If you think about process development to enable an IT uh, support organization that starts to globalize, you know, back in, in, in the early 2000s, we chose to insource uh, to non-U.S. locations versus outsourcing to third parties. So we had to develop all of the processes around that. I was involved a lot in our business collaboration strategies that made us think through, you know, what is our data management, information management, or knowledge management strategies. And then lastly, I had a role about 10 or 11 years ago where it was really focused on skill development across our 18, at the time, IT skill families. And it actually included developing the first class of IT fellows, which interestingly enough, as I mentioned earlier, I'm now part of 10 years later. I never would have thought that would have been the case at that point in time. So again, a number of those experiences across people, process, and technology spaces. So, so over 29 years, uh, certainly a lot of different kinds of experiences, a lot of technical firsts, leading the organization in ways um, to, to drive it forward at various points along the way. Um, aside from the experiences, let's talk about the skill side of this, because mm -hmm. there are some very unique skills that are required, and those skills can obviously be honed and, and developed over time. But help, help our audience understand what are some of the, the two or three core skills that you bring to the table every day that allow you to be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that comes to mind first, is, as I mentioned, is, is I learned a lot from solving complex math and, and science problems. You know, that taught me how to systematically approach problems and, and challenges. You know, think scientific method. You ask a question, perform research, establish your hypothesis, test that hypothesis, you know, make an observation and analyze the results, draw a conclusion, and then ultimately present those findings. So again, this methodical approach to breaking down uh, problems. And then in addition to this systematic approach, I can remember one time when I, I guess that was my preteen years, and, and I was doing a lot of jigsaw puzzles over the course of the summer. And if you think about if you do you know, tens of jigsaw puzzles over the course of a period of time, it, it helps you create this knack for pattern matching. You scan the pieces, you eliminate those that don't fit, and quickly find the pieces that match the pattern. And 
today that really continues as I survey the various landscapes that go into uh, the, the work areas that I have to focus on. If we think about business needs, emerging technologies, the skills, and then quickly being able to see the trends and patterns that ultimately bring those pieces together to solve a business problem. And it's that combination of problem solving, uh, pattern matching to ultimately see some insights. And I would argue sometimes see those insights before others, but yet therein lies one of my own challenges is helping others see and understand those insights mm-hmm. because it's, you know, it's one thing to gain the insight and see the opportunity, but it's still another to now action those insights. So as some call it that strategy to execution. And for me, sometimes it may take a few iterations to get that necessary traction. And at other times it may take months or years before the insights are understood and ultimately actionable for any number of reasons, be it technology maturity, you know, business readiness mm-hmm. or et cetera. You know, I laugh sometimes because often I'm asked about, Brett, what are the impacts of the decisions that you made today? And, and I'll joke with them and I'll tell them, hey, well, why don't you come back in three years and I'll let you know? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it, it really is, Ryan. Today's decision, in my mind, really begins to set a course that may not be fully realized for some time. So personally, I have to be OK with that delayed gratification while also ensuring that we are setting the necessary course to achieve the desired outcomes. Again, driving strategy to execution. Wow, that's that's really cool stuff. I wonder if you could give me an example of where that pattern matching problem solving has really shown up in your work because that you've been doing that since you were very young. It was just kind of a skill that you were, uh, it was ingrained in your DNA, but I know that that's, that's been honed over time. Give me an example of, of where that's shown up in some of the projects that you've been involved in. Yeah, the one that I, I get most excited about right now, I, I would say it's probably with quantum computing and quantum algorithm development. If you go back to, I guess it was probably 2017, yeah, I saw the market trends starting to heat up, especially around quantum computing. If you looked at any of the hype cycles or technology trends, man, it was hitting this uh, peak of inflation and and a lot of folks were talking about it. You know, nation states were talking about it. All of the analysts were talking about it. And, and part of my job is to kind of debunk the myths or, you know, dehype the hype, if you will. And, and, and I wanted to really dig into this to see, is there an opportunity here at some point? And, and because I knew it would take quite some time to explore and even understand how quantum computing could transform our business. And, and, and I spent a lot of time talking to industry analysts, uh, to suppliers, you know, even internally to some of our own researchers. But, you know, I found this one industry analyst whom I felt had a, a really good understanding, not only of, you know, the different facets of quantum computing hardware, but really beyond the hype of that, he really helped me see through some of the noise, especially as it came to this idea of quantum algorithm development, the software side of the house, if you will. And, and, and once I understood it wasn't so much about the hardware that in time would come and, you know, by no means are we going to go out and, and try and procure a, a quantum computer, especially at this stage, but, but it's beginning to learn and understand how that could help us in our business. But even as I began to pitch that within our organization, you know, many uh, had said quantum it's, it's still a fad and, and we're not ready to start thinking about it. It's still five, 10, 15 years away. 
but I knew still you know, it was starting to become real. There were ways that we could start you know, investigating or doing some additional research, especially with a number of startups or even large corporations starting to invest in this. So I happened to get introduced to a senior technologist in our corporate strategic research department who had also started exploring the potential of quantum computing and how it could be applied to our research program. And once we connected together, you know, we progressed this idea of a set of triggers and action plans that we felt we would need to be in place to begin pursuing you know, some sort of assessment in quantum uh, computing. So not so much, again, from the hardware, but from that algorithm perspective. And it was by focusing on those skills that we needed to develop and, and apply, you know, for uh, these current algorithms to our problems. I think it allowed us to advance it much faster. And folks began to see, okay, Brett, we, we get it. And so, in fact, uh, that, that collaborative work together resulting in, in us uh, joining with a, a multinational technology and research company and their own quantum computing uh, researchers to, to really focus on a couple of what we computer scientists like to call MP-complete problems or those really hard problems that today they can't be solved with the computing capability that we have. And the things we were looking at were things like molecular modeling and LNG or liquefied natural gas shipping optimization. So in 2019, together, we announced our formal collaboration on the main stage at the, uh, I think it was the Com uh, Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And since then, we have collaborated on several scientific publications and even a patent or two to really advance you know, how quantum computing can be applied to some of our, our, our business problems. And, you know, while some of those solutions are still not ready and will probably still take some time to be ready for what I would call enterprise scale, I think we've made some significant progress in that overall algorithm development and quantum computing processing capabilities in the three years since that announcement. You know, I want to go back to what you said earlier. You know, the decisions you make today, uh, we may not know uh, the impact of those for three years. I mean, how important is it to have an organization and a leadership team that understands that sort of timeline and that gives you the bandwidth and, the, and simply just has the patience and the trust in you to be able to, to give you that amount of time? Well, obviously, being a process-oriented company, we lean heavily into processes and process execution. And our technology uh, portfolio process has probably been something we've been focused on for 15 or more years within the IT organization. And, and through the years, we've begun to prove out how you know, that, that timing works. It, like I said earlier, we, we understand that there are times when, when technology is just not ready. So we may have found it fit for purpose, say in 2015, uh, like we did with Zoom um, mm. and, and, and other technologies. But because it wasn't quite ready for enterprise scale, we've learned through the years, it may take two, three, four. And in uh, the case for Zoom, for instance, it took almost five years for it to get to a point to where we felt it was not only ready to scale at the enterprise, but it was you know, secure enough to meet our pretty rigid uh, requirements from a security perspective. So I think we've had time and time again where we've shown that. But I think, Ryan, we have to be pretty careful with that process because we can get so enamored with technology that we lead with technology 
and, and, and not have a true business application. And so oftentimes we, we do challenge ourselves very quickly as we're looking at something like I was mentioning with quantum computing. It wasn't just about the computing capability itself. We had to go, how can this help us add business value? And I think time and time again, we've demonstrated uh, you, you know, with, with various technologies that these are the, you know, the areas in which we believe we can add value sooner. I mean, if you think about things like IoT and edge computing and how that can quickly enable uh, not only our manufacturing operations within refining and chemicals, but if you think about how it can help us light up, you know, remote, um, you know, upstream fields out, say, in the Permian and how we can get insights faster. Uh, but we have to start with that as a, a foundation. Again, there are times we do get to kind of look at the technology, have some grace, if you will, to, to, to be able to test it and, and, and do some proofs of concepts. But very quickly, it needs to turn into what is the business value it's going to generate? And I think because the organization has a pretty good track record in that space, we've been allowed you know, some of that latitude to explore some of these things, maybe a little longer than we might have in the past. But I'll be quite honest, as we've gone through the, you know, the last 18 to 24 months, and the market challenges that we've had brought on by the pandemic and, and, and other activities, it has challenged this. But I think, if anything, it really focused us on those things that in the short go would bring us the most benefit based on those market conditions. So we pivoted a little bit, reduced our, our program some. But now as, as, as we go through some of the market recovery, and, and, and some of the return to office, we're able to start exploring some of those things again uh, to, to not only help our IT organization think about things like uh, AI operations, uh, to, to, to think about um, you know, things like low Earth, low Earth orbit satellites and how that might help you know, further connect uh, our remote locations and, and, and a number of technologies like that uh, as, as we begin to uh, recover uh, from, from this market perspective. Now, Brad, I want to shift gears just for a moment. Now, still staying on the theme of key leadership attributes, but I, I know one of one of your core skills after after talking with other people who know you and, and my limited time of being around you, you do have a very strong passion for people and serving people. It's a core part, not just of, of uh, your DNA as a leader, but also just who you are at the core of you as a person. Help, help us understand how that developed. You know, if, if I think all way back, I've always had this desire to improve. You know, I think the Boy Scouts have a motto of leave things in a better shape than, than how you found them. And, and along with that, just challenging others to rise above mediocrity and, and, and complacency. And it's through this that I've sought to, to be a listener. You know, as Covey says, seek first to understand before being understood. You know, understand their perspectives, understand the context of their situation, and, and really try to take a holistic perspective uh, of the person and realizing it's never just one thing that's probably created the challenge or the tension uh, that, that we're currently going through. And, and for me, with, with, with some early wins, seeing people respond and grow because of our discussions, because I've held a mirror up to them, if you will, you know, and even back into you know, my high school days and even into college, and, and it, it was from some of those wins that I brought that same desire with me here uh, to ExxonMobil. And, and, and to be honest, I just get a lot of joy seeing others achieve what they once thought impossible. 
you know, changing that I can't. And there's just no way, Brett, that we can do that to, wow, I did it. And, and, and amazing. Look what we did. Mm. Or changing, Brett, that will never work. That's got to be the stupidest idea I've heard to, you know, that's pretty incredible. Who would have ever thought that was viable? And sometimes I think, you know, where did that come from? And, and I can remember uh, at one point, I guess it was my senior year in high school where you know, we didn't have a theater department, uh, but yet some of our teachers wanted to put on a play. So a bunch of us students gathered for that initial meeting and we talked about plays, things like Toga, 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 and Bye Bye Birdie and Little <laughs> Abner. You know, yeah. To us who had never done a production, that was huge. That was mm. way too big. And we just all agreed, there's just no way that we could do that. It's too hard. And, it, you know, Ryan, to be honest, I was one of the lead critics of why we needed something easier to do. Let's find <laughs> something that's more for us. However, it was amazing to see the teachers believe in us. And we ultimately ended up doing a play called Little Abner, uh, which was a huge success, not only with the students, the parents and in the community. And that play started a series of plays over the next many years that I think still continues to this day. And in fact, we found out recently one of the little girls uh, from our neighborhood when we lived in Baton Rouge in the late 1990s became the theater teacher at my high school in Alabama two or three years ago. Wow. And so, as, as I said, I continue to just get joy seeing others achieve you know, what they once were told was impossible, even in my own life. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just want to share a few quick things for November. First, our industrial mixers here in Houston, November 17th. It's usually the last Thursday of each month, but because of the holidays, we're having to move stuff around. Um, we're also launching a new live stream, OGGN Unscripted, on November 16th. We'll be at the Rockwell Automation Fair November 10th to 11th. You can come free. We'll have a live podcast there. We'll be hosting some panels. And then we'll also be at the 23rd World Petroleum Congress 5th through 9th, once again, with live podcast and hosting a couple of panels. Uh, for this information and everything else, just follow us on social. Check us out on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Facebook. And if you go to LinkedIn, go ahead and join the OGGN Street Team. I'll see you again next month. Well, good stuff. You know, um, one of the things that strikes me about your career is you've had lots of different roles, and some of those roles you've had former uh, formal leadership mm -hmm. positions where you have direct reports you're responsible for, and then you have other roles where um, your your leadership, even though you're you're operating in a very high level in the organization, your leadership was done really more through influence and mm -hmm. how you can get work through other done through others. Um, help us understand a little bit more about that, your perspective on um, leading formally versus leading through influence. You know, as, as, as a senior technologist with, I think, within any company, you know, it is how do you get that, as some call it, the seat at the table? I may not have a formal team that I'm responsible for. I'm not a senior manager or organizational leader, but I need to be able to have that seat at the table to bring a different perspective, you know, be it through my experiences or, you know, just through some of the, the work activities uh, that, that I've helped drive through the years, you know, because it, it's a given that we technologists have to know our stuff. 
We've got to understand the technology. We've got to be able to deploy it, know how to use it and manage its entire life cycle all the way up and through uh, retirement. We have to demonstrate authority and accountability for actions and decisions within a significant area of work, including those technical, financial and, and quality aspects. But the thing is, it doesn't stop there by just being the subject matter expert on any given technology. In fact, I've seen too many people short sheet their capabilities and impact by only wanting to focus on deep technology. Now, of course, don't get me wrong, Ryan, uh, we need people like that. Uh, but, but that alone doesn't allow you to be assigned those more senior technologist roles. Mm. For myself as a chief technologist, I also have to have the ability to influence, obviously, our senior IT leaders, our, our business leadership, and even external suppliers and, and, and other third parties. And we have to understand and be able to communicate those industry developments and, and, and the role and impact of technology for the business or act as a, an advisor across skill families or job families, as we call it, those uh, service delivery organizations, as well as our business lines. You know, general interest, that global general interest perspective and being able to build cross-functional relationships is huge uh, in, in our activities. And we also have to be able to identify and mentor future technical leaders, you know, prepare those who's going to come behind us one day. And as, as leaders are ourselves, you know, we senior technologists are held accountable to what at least we in ExxonMobil call those expectations of leaders. You know, we have to be able to set standards, create clarity, uh, inspire and motivate, ultimately helping us compete to win. You know, after my first few leadership roles, you know, I began to appreciate the need to gain clarity on the what. You know, what are the objectives? What is the desired outcome? And then just get out of the way and let the team ultimately drive the how. You know, because I saw many of my disagreements early on were on the how versus the what. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's do you go around the mountain? Do you go over the mountain? Do you go through the mountain or under the mountain? Whatever it may be, it, it, it just depends. But I learned early on, you know, we've got very smart people working around and, and, and with me. And, and just as I don't like someone looking over my shoulder and, and micromanaging me, I too needed to enable the team with just enough guardrails and let them excel. You know, it's interesting. I was visiting um, here in Houston. We've got this statue north of town of Sam Houston, one of the founding fathers of the state of Texas. And at the base of that statue, it says, govern wisely and as little as possible. And I think the same is true here as we think about how do we influence and, and, and lead our, our folks. So lead wisely uh, and as little as possible. And also, I like, I like that one. I, I, I like that one. I've been to the statue. I don't remember seeing that quote, but that, that, that's something we could all use a little, a little bit more of at this point. Yeah. The other thing, Ryan, to, to kind of add to that that came to my mind is, is a lot of folks think about positional power. But in my mind, especially in this type of role, it's not my position because in, in, in my mind, that only takes you so far. It's that difference between I said so and how do we create this idea of a win-win situation? You know, so, so my goal, like I learned in parenting even, is to provide a moral reason why, provide context, explain the implications, the risk and the opportunities, and then let the team do great things. 
But you know, I've, I've found, uh, if, if not careful, some of these strengths uh, can ultimately become a liability, sort of a, uh, I think some would call it a strength in, in excess. And two years ago, for example, I was assigned a, an executive coach and, and we worked through various self-assessments, 360 degree feedback and a number of day-to-day -day wins and challenges. And, and as we were bringing that engagement to a close, my coach summarized one of the most revelatory pieces of feedback I had ever received. He told me, Brett, as I've observed you over the past several months and sorted through all of the feedback with your penchant for data gathering, your ability to sift through and quickly analyze things and then support that with any number of patterns and examples and experiences, it's clear that you have a level of certainty around your conclusions that's pretty high. <laughs> you know, he, he said, Brett, you even communicate sometimes in a manner that there are no other options as you've evaluated most all of those options and, and quickly have sorted through those. He said it begins to create this posture that says, I'm attached to this outcome. I know it's the right way to go. I have to do whatever is necessary to get it accepted. So he said, Brett, your natural response is then to lean in, to become argumentative, and even get more frustrated and edgier in your discussions. And this is what finally ultimately made it sink in for me. He said, Brett, you need to temper what he called intellectual confidence. Hmm. He said, you need to temper that with a certain level of intellectual humility. That allows others then to change the outcome, to create curiosity and openness to an option that maybe you didn't think about. So it's back to that seek to understand you know, why their views are different versus, he said, Brett, you're, you're pretty good at asking questions to justify your own position. But he said, ask questions that help gather additional information that challenges your analysis, that challenges your belief structure. That was huge for me and really began to help shape how I continue now to influence folks. And, and so it was that holding up of a mirror to myself, not just to others, so that I, too, can see that need to balance intellectual confidence with intellectual humility. And I've been able to share that with a number of my peers who, especially over the last 18 to 24 months, have, have struggled with, with similar challenges you know, so, so, so that we could kind of work through some of those together. Now, on the topic of balance, this is one of the most fascinating things that I find about you is that over your career, you have been uh, unique, I think unique, in that you've been able to maintain, uh, Not you know, we use the term work-life balance mm -hmm. a, a lot, but you're a family guy. You, you, you've raised your children. You've been heavily involved in, in your family for a long time. You made it a priority throughout your career to not mm -hmm. sacrifice your responsibilities at home mm -hmm. for more success at work. I think that's a great example that we could all learn from. Uh, why was that so important to you? And how did you pull it off being in such high pressure roles in one of the largest companies in the world? You know, Ryan, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, you know, first, I was told early on in my career, this company, as I'm sure it says in, in other companies, but this company will take all that you give. You know, so I had to make some choices early on. How much will I give? How do I find that right balance, as, as you mentioned? Not that I wouldn't perform my very best and, 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 and bring my whole self to the office, 
but how much time and energy am I really willing to invest such that I leave something in the tank for when I get home? And, and so that balance in providing an, an even keel has been important to me and has, has grown even more so through uh, the years. Again, it's back to this holistic approach to life, seeking to provide balance uh, across those physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual elements of my life. Yet I know there were times when work has to take priority. You know, like when I've taken a new role, my wife knows that I go through about four to six weeks of schedule readjustment and reestablishing that balance. But likewise, I know there have been times when my family has had to take priority due to an illness or you know, children's activities. And now as empty nesters, even our, our grandchildren's activities. But that said, I think there was a few things early in my career where I went through uh, those first experiences of an increased workload, more responsibilities, a lot more travel taking me away from home. And, and it was by the time I think we had had our second child and it was during one of my trips, my wife took a picture of our, our son uh, who was about 18 months old at the time. And he had kind of peeped out through the blinds uh, in our den and was calling out for daddy. Of course that hit home as I had let my balanced approach get unbalanced and was starting to allow some things at home, especially my family to go waning. So I had to double down and, and rebalance and, and reprioritize uh, my approach because I didn't want to allow that to happen. And one of the outcomes uh, from that was a commitment to my wife and our children at the time to always have dinner or supper between five and six o'clock. Well, that required me to go into the office a whole lot earlier than what I had been doing so that I could get my work done, but also meet that commitment. But it wasn't as big a deal because my family, they're not early risers like I am. I enjoy getting up early and that's when I feel like I do some of my better work. But that allowed me to get home for dinner between five and, and, and six o'clock. And there were very few occasions when I wasn't traveling that we missed that commitment. And, and I even had to take a pretty firm stand a few times with coworkers and others who wanted to have meetings after four o'clock and I'd have to decline it. Ultimately, I ended up blocking my calendar so that I only allow meetings from, from seven uh, to four. And what's great, even now, as our children are grown and um, you know are out of the house, like I said, we're now uh, empty nesters. It's still important for my wife and I to sit down and have dinner between five and, and, and six o'clock. I guess it's that old adage that says a family that eats and prays together stays together. And, and that really became real for us as we began to you know to walk through those various stages and, and, and journeys of life. Well, you've done a remarkable job. I think that's a great story that needed to be told because uh, every every hardworking professional finds themselves in that position at one point or another in their career, where the demands of work, the pressure um, to deliver, and like you said, uh, go go above and beyond, can sometimes start to to impact uh, some of our other priorities. And I thank you for sharing that story. Mm -hmm. Hey, Brett, we're almost at the end of our time, but I, I do have one more question for you, and I want to get your perspective. You know, with the energy transition that we've all been talking about for a while now, kind of looming over every facet of the industry, I would love to get your perspective as the technology architect on where the biggest challenges and the biggest opportunities lie for the energy industry at large. I think, Ryan, as you might expect, especially within oil and gas, to be able to safely, securely, and reliably scale emerging technologies across our, our industry is really key, especially in this day and age. 
but you know what I'm finding and, and what I've come to, to realize, there's no one single technology that can be used uh, to carry us or other companies into the future. It, it's really more this idea of combinatorial innovation and, and combinatorial innovation across three areas as, as I've seen it for us around data security, around this idea of distributed computing. It's not all in the data center anymore. And this idea of decision science, think artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, and, and the like. But I'll start just a little bit with, with data security. If you think about many organizations have, you know, we have data here, data there, data everywhere. And it's this idea that we've had to continue decoupling data from applications. You know, somebody once told me, said, Brad, I think applications are like Chick-fil-A nuggets. You know, they're just the conduit to get the sauce. <laughs> and, and so apps sometimes are really just the conduit for the data. So we've got to break that and begin to focus on this idea of, of not only real-time data, but this integrated, trusted data so that our, our consumers, our users can aggregate that data, transform it, and then combine it from multiple sources, locations, and platforms. And so that they can ultimately get that business value out of it. Uh, but we have to be able to do that as, as IT professionals uh, and do it in a way that we protect that sensitive data using some sort of centralized controls. To me, it's this idea of a cybersecurity or identity mesh or fabric uh, where identity is the new uh, perimeter for our, our security. And of course, there's more and more emphasis on all various sorts of data encryption, be it you know, things emerging like homomorphic encryption, or even having to start thinking about post-quantum encryption, you know, to identify those algorithms that are resistant to attacks by classical and quantum computers so that we can keep those assets secure even after, you know, that we see that large-scale quantum computer being built. So data security. Distributed computing is another uh, area, again, way beyond the traditional data center. You know, it's part of your cloud journey. Uh, it, it's complementing that with the Internet of Things or Edge or ITOT, uh, however you want to, to call it. But in all of those things, as you start to think about the compute required for those scenarios, it's going to drive connectivity, 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 you know, connectivity of things and, and, and streams. And this whole idea of hybrid, hybrid cloud with both on-prem you know, compute capability, you know, cloud service providers, it continues to uh, expand the opportunities for us as an oil and gas company, as well as the industry and how do we uh, do that. And then lastly, this whole idea of, of decision science. And, and that in itself is fun, fundamentally and foundationally dependent upon data. I mean, think data management, data storage and security, data governance, data pipelines and processing, data quality, data lineage, and, and, and the list goes on. And so, so that you can get to those higher level math problems, if you will, of big data and analytics to doing things like uh, intelligent robotic process automation and ultimately, you know, machine learning. And, and it's not just machine learning to do machine learning, but it's moving that from what I see mostly these, this idea of niche or one off prototypes to really being able to take machine learning and, and scale it at, at an enterprise level so that ultimately you can accelerate the results with with data and that artificial and, and intelligent so you got to think through things like you know this distributed model development uh, for machine learning models you know how are you going to manage it how are you going to train them 
with this focus on edge, uh, AI, and, and kind of reusability and scalability, uh, and, and really looking at that whole idea of algorithm development and, and, and lifecycle. So really through all of this, you know, as I've said, we, we, we have to look for simplicity in the midst of what feels like chaos. So again, trying to find that repeatable pattern, doing some trend spotting, and ultimately delivering transformative business value. Well, great stuff, Brett. Thank you so much for joining me today, sharing so many insights and a lot of wisdom, not just about uh, leading inside the company, but how you uh, manage all of that uh, in your in your personal life as well. I hope uh, I hope your next uh, beef clod comes out perfect. <laughs> I can't I can't wait to try one. I've got to find somebody who does beef clod at some point. But anyway, Brett, thank you so much for joining, man. Yeah, my pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me, and and look forward to seeing all the great things that you and and this podcast has been able to do, and and, and have such a great impact on uh, our our business. All right, that'll do it for today. Thanks everybody for listening again. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. And also we would appreciate any review. If you want to leave a review at Apple podcasts or anywhere else that you access the show, much appreciated. Um, keep tuning in to the OGGN. We appreciate it. And until next time, everybody have a great one. Tune in next week for another enlightening episode of journey to the energy C-suite, a production of the oil and gas global network. Learn more at OGGN.com.